Psalm 119, verse 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. So, in transparency, we all must acknowledge that God has a sense of humor. Earlier this morning, I was upstairs telling myself how prepared I am for today's lesson. And quickly, as it says in Proverbs, a haughty spirit comes before the fall. I promptly fell down the stairs before I came in here. So, I stand up here with renewed humility before I deliver this message. Would you please bow your heads and hear these words from Martin Bucer for a prayer. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Children, I hope you can help me this morning as I open this sermon. Kids, what happens when you give a pig a pancake? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Leanna. <laughs> Many of you know and love the children's book, If You Give a Pig a Pancake, by Laura Numeroff. And the storyline goes like this. If you give a pig a pancake, she'll want some maple syrup to go with it. You'll give her your favorite maple syrup, and she'll probably get all sticky, so she'll want to take a bath. And if she takes a bath, she'll clearly ask you for some bubbles. You get the general idea of the progression of the pig, always wanting more. And I think this serves as an excellent metaphor for us when it comes to the doctrinal shift among the many different denominations that we're observing today. What was once settled doctrine has become squabbles and disputes over issues of sin and church polity. Some symptoms we're witnessing in these debates is the desire of some pastors in an attempt to be relevant to modern culture, be men-pleasers in their preaching, to preach to the ear and not to profit the heart, as Isaiah says. We see the use of therapeutic language to describe the transgression and acceptance of sin. Some throw biblical truth to the wayside under the proclamation of pluralism. And we see this time and again within the church. And as is so often the case, history repeats itself. On Sunday, May 22, 1922, yes, I said 1922, Presbyterian minister Harry Fosdick 
in the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church of New York, preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? In the sermon, Fosdick declared that our modern minds cannot use many of the Bible's teachings about Jesus, and that Christianity must change to fit the modern scientific mind. The sermon was printed and read widely throughout the country. Now, the Roaring Twenties, as they were called, ushered in a movement called modernism. The rejection of God and the dismissal of religion sit atop the list of the modernist endeavors. As modernists left the church and modernism left God behind, church leaders across denominations began to rethink their theological convictions and their ministerial priorities. They were not willing to be left behind in the cultural conversation, resulting in what church historians call liberalism or theological liberalism. Theological liberals deny the truth of the Bible, such as the virgin birth, miracles, the resurrection of Christ, and many other essential Bible doctrines that had defined orthodoxy for 2,000 years. Now, into this fray came a man named J. Grisham Machen. Machen was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He possessed a keen mind. He loved orthodox doctrine, the supernatural, and most importantly, the gospel. He was a powerful force for theological conservatism in the face of the unfaithfulness that was developing in seminaries and churches. All that came to bear in a book that he published in 1923 called Christianity and Liberalism. Side note, it's still available today. I would encourage you to pick it up. It's a great read. Now, in Machen's book, it was hated by theological liberals and scathed by them in reviews. But curiously enough, the intellectual elites of the day respected the book and recognized the, valid the validity of Machen's arguments. Unfortunately, Machen made many enemies within not only Presbyterianism, but across all mainline denominations. And he made these enemies by ironically insisting that the church hold fast to Scripture. Did you hear that? He made enemies by telling churches to hold fast to Scripture. Friends, our need is here today that doctrinal error and sin primarily come from the same question that Satan asked, confronted Adam and Eve with in the garden. Did God really say? Much like Machen, today the Christian community has its own struggle fighting against the idea that Christianity must change to fit the idea of modern culture. Friends, we too must hold fast to Scripture. Now, in theology, we speak of the perspicuity of Scripture. The word perspicuity simply means clarity. Since the Reformation, Protestants have held tightly to the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is clear on all the points God intended to communicate. But this idea was held long before the Reformers. Great theologians in the early church, including Irenaeus, Athanasius, Hilary of Poitiers, John Chrysostom, and Augustine all confessed to the clarity of Scripture. 
Friends, Scripture was given to us by God and is intended for all people and is therefore clear to anyone on the essential elements of the gospel and what it means to please God. In today's text, the psalmist gives us encouragement on how to keep our way pure and to pursue God in his scriptures and by his divine assistance, view scripture with clarity. So, how do we have clarity on what pleases God? I personally believe there has never been a more important question for our day. And the answer is given us to us today in Psalm 119, 9 through 16. The word of God is the key to being, on, being clear on what pleases God. As we live in this abstract world, and as we're going to see by the implication of the text this morning, keeping ourselves pure. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in scripture. It's an acrostic poem with 22 sections of eight verses each. The first word of each eight-verse stanza begins with consecutive letters from the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. The first is Aleph. This second stanza that we're studying today starts with Beth, and Beth's meaning is a dwelling place, a house or a dwelling place. So the underlying thought of this stanza today is making our heart and mind a dwelling place for the word of God. In a world advocating sin, greed, and pride, God's word is the means to know how to please him and how to keep our way pure. From our text today, I'm going to advocate three points and then wrap up with some application at the end. Point one, pursue God's word. We'll see that in verses 10 through 12. Pursue God's word. Second point, declare God's word. Declare God's word, verse 13. And finally, meditate. Meditate on God's word, verses 14 and 15. Now, our text today begins with a rhetorical question in verse 9. The simple question is asked, how can a young man keep his way pure? And quickly, the answer is given, by guarding it according to your word. The psalmist writes. Now the psalmist begins by directing the question to young men. Why? I think the idea is that youth is when good, but so often bad, habits begin forming. The language seems to imply that the question is being asked by an older teacher who has life experience and desires to guide impetuous and unthinking youth. J.C. Ryle captures this idea well in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, when he writes, Young men, lay to heart the scriptures. Do not be too confident in your own judgment. Cease to be sure that you are always right and others wrong. Be distrustful of your own opinion when you find it contrary to that of older men. Age gives experience and therefore deserves respect. Now, I believe it's in this sense that the psalmist is warning those of youthful vigor. Yet I think the idea of the Ryle quote captures well that self-examination is applicable to all of us. Unfortunately, the following verses, 10 through 16, give us a path 
of how to protect ourselves by holding fast to Scripture? The answer, as it so often is, is so simple. We see that in the second part of verse 9. By guarding it according to God's word. Now, it's God's word that directs the believer to understand God's character and what pleases him. Laid out before us is a path to personal understanding of how to know God, his attributes, and how to guard ourselves from being influenced by the world. As the letter Beth suggests, we should make our heart and mind a dwelling place for the word of God. Our first point this morning, pursue God's word. Pursue God's word. Verses 10 through 12 say, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. As verse 10 so clearly tells us, it's with our entire being, with our whole heart, that we are to seek God. Our heart, our mind, our eyes, our lips, what we think what we say, what we observe. We're to protect and seek God with those. those. The word of God is the agent of the spirit of God uses to regenerate the hearts of all who are saved. God himself is revealed in his word. Out of fear of wandering from God, the psalmist cries out, let me not wander from your commandments. And this should be our prayer as well. The more a person pursues God that is revealed in the scriptures, the more a person dreads straying into sin. Thomas Watson writes, Our Savior bids us to to search the scriptures, John 5.39. We must not read these holy lines carelessly as if they did not concern us, but pursue them with reverence and seriousness. The text continues in verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Hebrew here is not so much emotional, but rational, volitional, meaning we store up his word with intention and with choice. Now, the psalmist, the word the psalmist used here is translated stored, but it's more literally meaning to hoard something, to collect something for future use. So more literally, we're to hoard God's word in our heart. This reference to our heart means our innermost being, the will, the intellect, the place where decisions are made, and we are to hoard God's word there. Now, it might surprise you, out of all the times this Hebrew word in the Old Testament is used, our intellectual and rational functions are most often in view. The heart is the core of our being the seat of our understanding, the source of thought and reflection, and the seat of our will. Therefore, we should hoard up, lay up God's word to drive our will and receive it into our affections. Hoarding the word of God in one's heart involves both knowing our creator, what he has revealed, and living our entire life in devotion to this God. Hoarding the word in our hearts does not mean only knowing what it says, it also involves structuring one's life around its precepts, its teachings. B. 
being so thoroughly under its dominion that it's embedded into our everyday life. So why do we hoard God's word? Again, the answer is so simple in the second half of 11. That I might not sin against you. Friends, the word of God is our most powerful, powerful ally and antidote to the enemy and poison of sin. When we hoard God's word in our heart, its teachings cause us to subdue our sin. J. Grisham Machen says this, when the protection of God's word is removed, the temptations of his world, of this world, grow far stronger. Now, I would say in our pursuit of God's word, the discipline of memorizing scripture can serve as a bulwark against the inroads of sin. Remember how Christ did not hesitate to quote the word of God in order to turn away the temptation of Satan in Matthew 4. Also, how edifying is it when we're encountering the world and its ideas and we use scripture that we've memorized to remind us of the truth of our Lord? Verse 12 goes on to say, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. In verse 12, the, petition, the psalmist petitions the Lord by what I think is a simple prayer that the Lord will instruct him in the word, that he might be given discernment and understanding to rightly appropriate and apply the truth. Prayer is so important as we come to study the word. It's absolutely crucial that our prayer be saturated with the word and that our Bible reading be saturated with prayer because this is how we get to know and commune with God. And the Hebrew word for teach is more conveying the idea of working to become an expert. As the psalmist, we too should make a practice of incorporating prayer when we study God's word so that we might, may I say cautiously, become an expert in knowing it. Our second point this morning, declare God's word. Declare God's word. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Now, as we learn God's word, we should naturally transition from being taught God's word, as we see in verse 12, to now verbalizing God's word to others. I think it's a natural progression to want to talk about something that you're excited about, particularly as your understanding of that topic expands. You see, the psalmist is not only pursuing God's word in his heart, as we saw in verse 11, but he's also declaring God's word to others. To others, And we should mimic this. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Friends, declaring God's word goes far beyond evangelism, although evangelism would be included here. I would contend that it speaks more to the practice of using the word of God for encouragement to one another in a believing community and family of Christ. I would also suggest that it includes what's called irenics. Irenics in theology is the practice of debating and discussing Christian doctrines 
with other Christians. It happens among those who are theologically orthodox, but where there are matters of genuine, genuine disagreement. It involves the friendly but rigorous task of doing theological reflection together within the community of faith. This is healthy. Hear me again. This is healthy. But you need to know scripture to participate. Now, if any of you paid attention to the Southern Baptist Convention this year, you might have heard Rick Warren, who is founder of Saddleback Church in California, appeal to the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee to remain affiliated to the SBC. Saddleback was disaffiliated over ordaining women to, as pastors. Al Muller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and representing the executive committee, gave the rebuttal, which highlighted the idea of the fundamental biblical authority that we are under. Friends, this is an example of irenics. Now, a little side note. I would like to add that confessionalism is important in the discussion here. Confessionalism is simply the practice of doing theology within the context of a confession. It lays out the doctrine, gives an explanation of it, and then gives the scriptural support. When one reads the Bible in isolation from the history of the church, and especially the history of interpretation, it will result in doctrinal inconsistency, or what I called earlier doctrinal schizophrenia, but Michelle didn't like that text. <laughs> Confessions of faith have been produced throughout history as a result and need of theological clarity. At Calvary Redeeming Grace, we subscribe to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Now, hear me, it does not replace scripture but it can be a tremendous guide and assistant when discussing scriptural orthodoxy with someone. Our third and final point. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. 14 through 16 say this, verses 14 through 16, In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In verse 14, we're told that we should delight in God's testimonies. And to delight in something means to take great pleasure in or receive a high degree of satisfaction in. God's word is a treasure, and we should delight it as we would if we were blessed with great wealth. Thomas Watson writes this, when you read the word, look on it as a soul-enriching soul enriching treasury. Search here as for a vein of silver. It's this word, in this word are scattered many divine statements of truth. Gather them up like as so many jewels. This blessed book helps enrich you. It fills your head with knowledge and your heart with grace. Friends, isn't that stated well? Verse 15 goes on to then say, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The Hebrew word for meditate means to ponder and to converse with oneself aloud. You see, in Old Testament Hebrew culture, meditation was not a silent activity, but a low intonation or chanting of the scriptures, and it involved the intellectual engagement with the text of, of scripture. Joel Beakey writes, Explore the Bible 
as a prince exploring the property he has inherited from his royal father. Meditate on the scriptures by turning over a single verse at a time in your mind and savoring its teachings. Review and restudy familiar parts of scripture and press on into parts you have neglected until now. Feed yourself. The psalmist continues to direct us, direct us to fix our eyes on the Lord's ways. In the original language, it's more akin to regarding pleasure of a well-walked road or well-trodden path. When we meditate on the scriptures, we should find pleasure in it, and we should be familiar with it like a road we travel often. Have you ever become lost when you're on a road that you know well? I hope not. So it is with God's word. When we travel it well, meaning study it often, we will never become lost or go the wrong way. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the road and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Our final verse in our text today, verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In looking over the scriptures, pursue them, declare them, meditate on them, and walk according to them as you would a well-known path. This should cause us to delight in the word of the Lord. Reformer William Tyndale writes, The scripture is the touchstone that tries all doctrines and by which we know false from true. The scripture is the light and shows us the true way both what to do and what to hope for, and a defense from all error and comfort in adversity. Friends, hoard God's word in your heart. Take pleasure in it and travel it as you would your favorite scenic drive. Now I'd like to give us three practical points of application, hopefully something you can take away today. First, Let scripture interpret scripture. Since God is not a God of confusion, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14.33, we can never read scripture in such a way that it teaches contradictory things. There's a fundamental unity to the Bible that means it teaches, this means it teaches the same central message from Genesis to Revelation. God does not confuse us by packing in individual texts with several irreconcilable meanings or by giving us contradictory teachings on what it means to please him. Scriptural teaching is unified, and we should always be looking for the harmony between the different parts of the Bible. Two, keep Jesus at the center. Biblical history is essentially the history of Jesus who fulfilled God's promise to send a mediator to repair the breach between God and men. We should read all of Scripture as though it always points to Jesus. Christ himself says in Luke 24, 44, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he teaches us God's will. 
As king, he rules over history and judges the thoughts, words, and deeds of men. And as priest, he lays down his life to save his people. Finally, in reading scripture, see the law as law and the gospel as gospel. The law is anything we hear or read in a commanding voice. Do, do not, be, be not. The law tells us what to do and how to do it. The gospel, on the other hand, tells us what has been done. The word gospel literally means, as many of you know, good news. The gospel tells us how God acted towards us in Christ. If anything, hear this. The law means do. The gospel means done. Quick illustration, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. But what does he require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Great points to live by, but friends, that is law. That is law. He's telling us what to do. The gospel, on the other hand, is like in 1 Peter 1.3. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is gospel. Now, when law and gospel are distinguished, the Bible becomes clear. We rightly recognize that God's righteousness and holiness revealed in his law shows us our sin, sickness, and need for a savior. When the law has done its work, convicting us of our sin and guilt, it's then that we are ready for the gospel to come and declare the good news of what Christ has done for us. Jesus fulfilled the law in Matthew 5.17, bore its curse, we see that in Galatians 3.13, became our substitute, Hebrews 2.17, and rose from the dead that sinners might be declared righteous in God's sight, Romans 4.25. To the weary sinner racked with guilt, we can take comfort that the good news of the gospel, after being crushed by the demands of the law, Christ's blood is sufficient, and our salvation is sure in him. Though we all, hear me, though we all fail to live as we should, we can trust in God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Hear this quote from J. Grisham Machen. The Bible is perfectly plain in the things that are necessary for your souls. God will make other things in it clearer to you as the years go by. Read it, my friends. It's God's book, not man's book. It is a message from the king. Read it, study it, trust it, live by it. Other books will deceive you, but not this book. This book is the word of God. Speaking of J. Grisham Machen, what happened to him in his fight against theological liberalism? I'm sure you're dying to know. He criticized theological liberalism as unbiblical and unhistorical and struggled to preserve the conservative character of Princeton Theological Seminary. Unfortunately, this seminary was reorganized and adopted a more accepting attitude towards theological liberalism. So Machen resigned in 1929. Now, after resigning from Princeton, he took the lead in founding Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, for those of you who are Reformed, that's an important institution. 
Now in 1936, Machen, they took it even further, and Machen was suspended from ministry by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. He was suspended because of his opposition to a modern liberal revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Following his suspension from the ministry, he helped found the Presbyterian Church in America, which became the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1939. Tragically, Machen died of pneumonia on New Year's Day in 1937 at the young age of 55. Machen was a major theological voice in support of conservative Christianity. Many historians label him as arguably the most important conservative Protestant thinker and theologian of the first half of the 20th century. And he is always remembered as holding fast to scripture. Friends, hold fast to scripture. Pursue, declare, and meditate on God's word so that you may keep your way pure and by his divine assistance, view scripture with clarity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning, studying your word. Incline us and discipline us to take up the Bible and to read it, meditate on it, and memorize it. Incline us to drink in its living water and to eat its heavenly bread so that we are made strong by knowing you at a level that we have not yet known. Cause our hearts to dwell on your scriptures and use it to transform our minds and apply it to our lives. In Christ we pray these things. Amen.